Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome to the latest episode of The Checkup. My name is Kate Hickey and I'm part of Barry Nelson's National Health Law Team. Today we are discussing the coronavirus or COVID-19, which is without doubt the most talked about issue around the world right now and probably will be for the foreseeable future. The coronavirus was first discovered in Wuhan, China at the start of 2020 and has rapidly spread throughout the world, causing widespread fear and panic. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Lai Heng Fung with us today to help us understand and navigate this public health crisis. Lai Heng is an emergency physician in Sydney. She is also chair of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine's Public Health and Disaster Committee. Thank you so much for joining us, Lai Heng. We are so fortunate to have you here and thank you for taking the time to speak to us at what must be an extremely busy time for you and your colleagues. It's a pleasure. I would typically kick things off with a brief description of coronavirus, but it seems you're the most qualified person for the job. Can you tell us what coronavirus is and what we currently know about this virus? So the coronavirus is called because its shape looks like a a crown and there are groups of them that have caused uh, global pandemics. And the current one is uh, called COVID-19. Um, but the previous ones that people might remember are the swine flus, avian flu, and the Middle Eastern respiratory um, virus. So they are um, viruses that um, start off with epidemics and then can spread to become a pandemic. Um, And uh, the effects kind of range from just mild disease to someone who can be intubated and put in intensive care. It's probably an understatement to say that the virus has caused widespread fear and panic in the general community. The media saturation has certainly been intense. Can you give us some insight into what you and your colleagues are experiencing in the emergency department? So currently, uh, we are sort of at the bottom of the um, epidemic curve. So we're seeing some slowly increasing numbers coming in to be screened. But uh, given the previous experience in other countries like um, China and Italy, Singapore, we expect that that curve is going to shoot up very quickly. Uh, People talk about the exponential part of the rise of the curve. And so um, we predict that it's going to come in the next uh, couple of weeks or three weeks. Um, And uh, that's why in our emergency department, we're getting ready to receive an influx of patients But we also think that it's very important to get the message out there to the community that we actually have the ability to influence the shape of that curve. So by adopting some public health measures and community, um, or we call it social distancing policies, um, we can actually flatten 
the curve so that we don't see as many people affected. But more importantly, we actually will see a staggering of people coming in rather than a whole big number coming into hospitals and overwhelming our resources. We expect to be overwhelmed, but we just don't want to be completely swamped. So this is a critical time, clearly. Uh, The confirmed cases in Australia are growing daily, which is not surprising. Some schools, universities, public events, businesses are being shut down. There's travel bans being imposed. Um, There's periods of isolation for people returning from overseas. And a vaccine seems to be quite a way away. The World Health Organization has now declared it a pandemic. That sounds like a terrifying term, but what does a pandemic actually mean? So a pandemic is basically an epidemic, so an infectious disease outbreak that spreads on a global scale. So basically, the um, the infection spreads to other countries and gets you know transmitted to populations in that country in a sustained manner, and that's when they call it a pandemic. So it's not about the actual severity of it; it's more about the widespread nature of it. Yes, exactly. Laiheng, some people are saying we should go about our daily lives with a few extra precautions and others are saying everything other than essential services should be shut down immediately and that we should stay away from the grandparents for six months. Given what you are seeing in the emergency department and what we can learn from other countries, what response do you think is appropriate? We have to, for any kind of public health policy, we have to balance the risk of transmission of an infectious disease with the social disruptions and panic that any announcements will cause. Uh, And we take this actually very seriously. But having looked at um, all the data that we've got from countries that have been through this um, kind of surge, uh, we actually think that uh, social distancing is advisable because um, we can reduce the number and we can stretch the length of the epidemic to a measurable or controllable fashion. So basically, you know, if you walked into my emergency department now and from a sore throat to a heart attack, I'm confident that I can manage you in my department because right now I have numbers that are under control. It's uh, what I'm used to and we have the resources to cope with it. So the problem with everyone arriving at the same time is that we get overwhelmed. And when you get overwhelmed, you have to actually prioritize the sickest, prioritize the youngest. And so you just might not get the same care as you would if we were business as usual. So this is not to say that, you know, we don't care about certain people. It's just the reality is you can manage only a certain number of people at the same time and give the same quality of care. But if you have 10 times that number, which is what, you know, some are predicting, then there is no way with the same number of staff you'll be able to say to give the same quality of care. Laiheng, can you just tell us, what are the symptoms of this virus and what are the current guidelines regarding who should go and get themselves tested if they are having those symptoms? So the symptoms that people come in with can vary between nothing, having no symptoms, or a bit of a runny nose, or a mild cough, 
Or actually, if you're older and have respiratory problems, you could come in in respiratory distress, um, can't breathe without any um, oxygen. Uh, You could be also um, having immediate need to be intubated and put on a life support machine. So it varies. Um, The predictions are that uh, from previous countries' experience, 80% of people infected will actually have a mild disease or no disease. And then the other 20% are more significant and require admission to hospital. And out of that 20%, 5% of that will need intensive care, which means they need to be on a ventilator or some sort of uh, um, support for their blood pressure or very intensive one-on-one care. So we keep hearing that this virus is very contagious. Do we know how contagious it is, so for example, compared to the flu? And do we know how long it lives on surfaces? We know that uh, this virus is probably more infectious than the flu. Uh, It has, uh, when we talk about transmission and infectivity, uh, we talk about the R0. So it's a rate of um, replication and transmission to how many people before um, they kind of die off or improve. So the R0 of this virus, it's about 2.6. So each person will infect three people at least who will infect three people. So it's uh, basically, you know, will rise from there. It used to be uh, described that it was only on uh, more elderly patients and people with uh, pre-existing conditions. But I think in Italy now, they're starting to see younger people who get very, very sick, and it's a bit unclear why yet. So, you know, viruses have an ability to mutate and they can certainly adapt to the host. And after many, many cycles of that, they could cause more serious problems. But I think currently um, it's still the case that because numbers are increasing so quickly, the health system just can't cope Mm. with it. So that's um, the problem we have right now. So how can we best protect ourselves from the virus? What precautions should we all be taking right now? So for example, what do we mean when we say social distancing? So social distancing um, is uh, basically a broad term that covers your personal behaviour that would decrease the risk of the transmission of the virus. So that includes uh, proper hand washing and not just like one or two seconds, you know, with the soap and water. It's actually um, healthcare workers are advised to do it for 20 seconds and we have a certain way to, to clean our hands. And certainly don't put the keep the tap running. You can just, you know, wet your hands, put the soap, turn off the tap, you know, and... Um, clean your hands for 20 seconds or you use um, alcohol rub and basically you just squeeze some to your hands and make sure it covers all the surfaces of your hand and you let it dry. So when it dries, that in itself should kill at least more than 95% of germs, including viruses. Okay. So either or is fine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. But good luck finding any alcohol rub. I know. There's none in, there's none in the <laughs> shops I've, I've checked. I think we've already talked about this, but, you know, the information that we seem to be receiving at the moment is that the vast majority of people, probably about 80%, who get this virus will probably have mild symptoms. And we've already talked about the fact that there do seem to be exceptions to that, particularly we're seeing younger people in Italy. But 
What about the people in our community who are more at risk? So that seems to be elderly people, immune compromised people, people with pre-existing health conditions. You know, I've been thinking that it must be hard for them to be constantly hearing people saying, you know, we'll be fine, we'll just get a cold when they know that for them that may not be the case. So how can we best do that? How can we best protect more vulnerable people and not just think about how it's going to perhaps affect us? Yes, so social distancing helps again. Yep. Um, and also, I guess, if you're unwell, you shouldn't be visiting your grandmother. Yep. Uh, you shouldn't be visiting nursing homes. Um, you should know um, enough to self-isolate yourself until you get better. I mean, you might have the flu. We are actually yep. hitting yep. normal flu, seasonal flu season. But even that, you shouldn't be going to, you know, um, a place where there are lots of old people. Um, and uh, you can excuse yourself, you know, from these kind of gatherings. And you certainly shouldn't go out to um, shopping centers and you can order online and, you know, so, and then um, hand washing is really important. And uh, you also have to think that when you deplete your supermarkets of essentials, including toilet paper, you are actually stopping people who are vulnerable, who might be disabled, who might be old, who can only shop once a week, right? They plan their life, they go one day, and if they go to the supermarket and everything is empty, and they have no support person, right. you know, they, they can't um, look after themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, now is the time um, is to band together as a community and actually think about people beyond just your nucleus family, you know, and think about all the people who are less fortunate than you, who, um, whom you need to protect. And I'm appealing to people's humanity, I guess, to think about those less fortunate and uh, act in a way that could protect them as well. It's actually been really heartbreaking to see elderly people dragging themselves to the supermarket and then not being able to find basic essentials. So I think that's a great message. Just in terms of these pre-existing health issues, do we know at this stage what pre-existing health issues are the most problematic for people that contract this virus? Yes, um, again, because this virus primarily first affects the respiratory system, that would be the first. Um, and then conditions like diabetes that lowers your immune system, people who have immunosuppression for whatever reason, whether they are on immunosuppressive therapy because they are, they've got um, lupus or they've got rheumatoid arthritis or people who've got... Um, a um, organ transplantation and uh, or just people who are malnourished and uh, disproportionately probably affects um, people who are, they could be young, but they could have poor health status anyway because um, they could have drug addiction, they could be an alcoholic, they could, you know, have uh, type 1 diabetes that affects them young. So it's uh, any form of immunosuppression, yeah. And uh, what about children? I think it's really interesting that children who we know still have a developing immune system, whilst they appear to be contracting the virus, um, they don't appear to be getting very sick from it. Do we know why that is? Actually, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't think we're completely sure yet. Um, but uh, what we're sure of is that they can be asymptomatic carriers, which means they have no symptoms, but they actually carry the virus and can infect other people. 
And uh, as we know, um, people with kids know, um, they don't really like clean their hands or, you know, they love touching things, touching people, putting things in their mouths. So, you know, their hygiene is probably slightly questionable. Mm. Um, bless them. They don't, <laughs> that's the way they behave. But right now is not the time to have no, you know, that kind so of, we really need to be reminding our children as well about washing their hands and not getting too close to others and social distancing as much sure. as we can yep. in an age-appropriate way. Um, yes. We need to be reminding them too that this stuff is important without causing them to panic or be fearful. Okay, so I just wanted to touch on the healthcare system because, you know, we've seen what's happened in Italy and, you know, it's heartbreaking to hear reports that they're having to prioritise healthcare for those who they think will be most likely to survive. How do you think our healthcare system will cope? If we um, don't try to flatten the curve by our behaviour, then our health system will definitely be overwhelmed. And uh, we have top-class health system at the moment with very, very highly trained staff. But uh, if we do hit the projected number of patients, we won't have enough people to look after these patients. We don't have the space, we don't have the equipment, and therefore something's got to give. And uh, I've actually um, encouraged um, all the clinicians I work with to be ready to give conversations like that about um, limiting care. Um, I don't like to say that word. We never, we try never to do that. But if our health system is overwhelmed for whatever reason, um, by default, that's what we're going to have to do. So it's, uh, it's not a very, very pleasant thing to contemplate at all. And that's why we're trying to get the message across to people to try to behave in a way that would flatten the curve. Yep. Okay, so let's just talk a moment about health professionals because I know a lot of them are understandably anxious about how best to cope with this crisis. It's uncharted territory for all of us, really. And, um, you know, we've seen that some doctors have been publicly criticised for seeing patients when they were infected, despite the fact they appeared to be following the government guidelines. Is there concern amongst the medical community about this? And what can the medical community do to protect themselves because the last thing we want to see is our healthcare workers to be taken out of action when we most need them. Exactly. Um, thanks for that great question. It's something that uh, health professionals have asked themselves and their colleagues and we've you know, kind of come together as a community on this, actually. We were all uh, very... Um, upset when there was um, a doctor that, you know, um, whose confidentiality was breached uh, about going to, to work and then testing positive. And uh, instead of, uh, he didn't know that he was positive, no. right? So instead of congratulating him for actually going to work, yeah. um, because he said actually he wasn't that unwell. He had a runny nose. Yeah, and then once he found out, he excused himself from work, but yeah. you don't know. So no. I think increasingly now health uh, facilities are recommending that even without a fever, if you have a bit of a runny nose, as a health professional, go get yourself tested so that, you know, in the turnaround time of the test, it's a, it ranges between 48 to 72 hours. Some get in six hours, lucky them, but that is probably preferable to self-quarantine for 14 days. Sure. Can you imagine if every doctor quarantined yeah. themselves for 14 days? No. There'll be half the, you know, workforce because uh, yeah. it's winter. 
and they've got flu, they've got cold, you know, around uh, in the community, you will get a runny nose. Mm. And uh, it's not necessarily coronavirus, but you won't know until you get yourself tested. So just be careful, get yourself tested. There are many hospitals that have opened up screening clinics as well, and they are prioritizing healthcare workers so they can actually get tested and come back to work because we need as many as possible in the next few weeks. Absolutely. So as a lawyer who acts for health professionals, we're getting a number of calls from concerned medical practitioners who are wanting to do the right thing by patients, but they're also concerned that they may not have the facilities or resources to deal with the enormous task of testing for and then treating people who contract this virus. Are you and your colleagues concerned about this? Yes. Um, first of all, there's actually no specific treatment at the moment. We're trying a few treatments in all supportive care. Um, and uh, we've definitely been talking about it. It's something I mentioned um, earlier, just about when your health services get overwhelmed, sometimes you have to prioritize. So we have actually been asking as a group, what kind of protection do we have by medical legal um, organizations like you? Um, If we have to do that and whether there are special measures that need to be introduced, just like the Good Samaritan Act, but something kind of the opposite, you know, just uh, if um, we can't help because it's uh, or we per, we are perceived not to help because the healthcare organisation is uh, overwhelmed, then what do we do? Um, we just want the community to know that we always strive to do our best, and uh, um, but we have limited number of staff and we have limited space and we have limited equipment. So uh, we are trying our best now to purchase as many extra ventilators as possible, trying to recommission a lot of um, the ventilators that are not being used just so that we are ready um, to face this um, surge of patients. But with the numbers predicted, um, it might be difficult for us to, to, to meet that demand. So it's definitely something on our minds and hopefully you shed some light on it in some other podcasts. Um, it's probably uncharted territory for the legal industry too, I would say. So, Thank you. But look, I, I mean, I do worry about doctors who are trying to do their best um, being criticised later. And this, there certainly is some potential actually for people who may contract the virus to bring claims against doctors or healthcare facilities if they think they've contracted the virus at the facility or, or from a doctor. And I'll provide some links in the notes at the end of this podcast to a few relevant cases in that regard. But um, suffice to say, patients have certainly been successful in bringing claims against medical facilities for not having adequate hygiene measures in place. But I imagine that they're, as you've touched on before, they're very difficult ethical issues for medical professionals to grapple with. But thank you. Um, That clears up some of the, yeah, uh, confusion and uh, uncertainty among doctors. Laiheng, I just wanted to touch on mental health because... You know, this is such an unprecedented situation and it's causing a lot of stress and anxiety in the community, which may explain, I guess, to some extent, the frenzied buying of toilet paper. But um, I imagine anyone with an existing mental health condition such as anxiety or depression would be particularly vulnerable at this time. Are you seeing evidence of this? And what would your advice be to people who are struggling with these issues? So in fact, uh, I worked on Saturday and I did see someone who came in with a uh, with a panic attack, an actual panic attack that we had to treat. Um, but then 
among that, we also saw a few anxious families who have, you know, who have come in um, wanting to be screened and uh, we're having to tell people we can't screen you at the moment. So as I mentioned before, you know, it's very difficult to try to convey uh, the severity of a problem while at the same time not causing panic. That's why I think it's really important for health professionals like me to speak up because uh, we can speak in a calm manner and actually give some practical advice uh, to people and dispel some myths also about what they... Um, so I, I've been advising people for the last two weeks now who have come that they don't meet criteria for screening and there is no way just sitting in a bus being coughed at by some random people that uh, they would have coronavirus or being in a school with uh, Asians that they would get coronavirus. So or even um, just going shopping in Broadway and someone was found to have coronavirus somewhere mm. really far away, yeah. the likelihood is probably small. Yeah. Um, so you need to be with someone um, less than one meter away for at least 15 minutes if they're coronavirus positive to actually have a high risk that you'll get it. Yeah. So, and... Um, that's why we contact trace people. So people who are actually sitting next to each other in a meeting, we contact them. The Public Health Authority has been working so hard to try to contact trace all the people who spend time with people who are positive. Yeah. But in a random way, just because someone coughs doesn't mean you have a high risk of getting coronavirus at all. Yeah, that's really helpful because I think a lot of people are confused about who should go and get tested. Mm -hmm. So it's really... Um, people who have been in contact with a known case yes. or if they've just come back from overseas and are unwell. Um, within 14 days within of returning, 14 days of um, returning. From overseas. Yep. Um, and then now they've just changed saying anyone who arrives here, yep. all of them in have quarantine. to self-quarantine for 14 days. And yep. if they uh, develop symptoms, then they should get tested. Yep. Uh, finally, um, Laihang, there's a, so much information online at the moment um, about this virus and some of it is no doubt misleading. Where would you direct people if they want to keep up to date with the most reliable and accurate information? So New South Wales Health actually has, um, if you go into their website, if you search New South Wales Health, yep. there'll be one section of it that's for community members. So there are other sections that are for health professionals, but they are also just um, information written in layman's language for community members to access. And it's all there. I know because I went there yesterday mm -hmm. and uh, they even define, you know, the virus, what what's a pandemic, what do they need to do individually and as a community member to decrease the spread of the virus. So it's all there. And uh, there's also the Clinical Excellence Commission. They have information for patients yep. and also family members. So that would be good. And you can at least be sure that these two sources are respectable and factual. Yeah. Okay, that's great. We'll put, actually put links to those at the end of the podcast. Um, Leihang, given you're one of the many health professionals on the front line of dealing with this virus, we're so privileged to have you on this episode. Thank you so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to share your wisdom with us. And also thank you 
for all that you're doing to try and control this virus and good luck. Thanks a lot. This means a lot to me and I'm really happy for any opportunity to be able to spread um, a health message that's uh, founded on truth and can actually make an impact on this. Thank you. Thank you so much. As always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to get in touch via our website. We will include any resources and helpful links in the show notes at the end of this episode. Thank you again, Dr. Fung, and thanks to our listeners for tuning into the checkup.